Shelly effect. I'm a big fan of the show. Chuck O'Shelly. And he's been known for many years as a blind GFK researcher specializing in intelligence agency involvement in multiple assassinations, propaganda, and other global criminal operations in the 20th and 21st centuries. Your listeners are extremely fortunate to have you. And now, the most underrated voice in all, in all media. Chuck O'Shelly! December 15, 2020, allegedly, according to that thing we call a calendar. And this is the show you were looking for. Guess how I know that? You found it. Now, this is going out live on the Ocelli.com stream. Uh, we're not being carried in our usual affiliate places, but don't worry. I'm sure it will be replayed there shortly. It is... Tuesday, Tuesday, the second broadcast day of the week, but uh, this is not the normal broadcast, and it's kind of a good thing. I only do special broadcasts, by the way, for particular individuals. I always note that uh, even though I love Eastside Morales, I uh, would not record earlier in the day for him, <laughs> so he had to come on the live show, but there are a few people, just a handful, mind you. Katie Caden was one of those, by the way, uh, about a year ago now. That, uh, that I, cause uh, look, I, I, the only chance I was going to get to speak to that remarkable voice, sorry, had to do it. And I know it was, you know, a weird sort of mainstream thing for me, but had to give her the early part of the day recording and was grateful to do so. But, um, one of those other people who, uh, again, does not necessarily, uh, have the grand Google search amounts out there <laughs> or whatever, but, is someone who I will make a special exception for. Alan Dale is with me. Now, Alan is an interesting guy in and of himself. And, and, and if you're in JFK land, so to speak, if you know about literature, if you know about the conferences, if you know about various podcasts of interest, interviews, things like that, you might very well know who Alan Dale is. But in case you don't, we're going to uh, reintroduce him to a great many people. And he has been part of our show before and notably, in fact, on uh, one of the myth shows and gave a, a very interesting sort of mini presentation during one of those myth shows. And I got to say, it was remarkable. Go back in the archives and search for Alan Dale. He's easy to find, by the way, because Alan is spelled with one L. So that way you won't get him mixed up with any other Alan in the archives. Uh, and why am I having him on today? Well, a book whose title, by the way, and I didn't even tell Alan this before going to air, but the title reminds me of one of the first Star Trek scripts I ever read, which was The Devil in the Dark. Oh, yeah. Okay, and I'm a Star Trek guy. People know this, but... Um, oh, Horta. Yeah, well, you, you know the... I did not know that you knew the episode, but... There is also this concept and this sort of um, hmm, phraseology that goes along with the devil and the details and all that. And I'm not even sure what the origin is. I just know it's like part of the uh, lexicon of phrases out there. And in, in my mind, a little bit, a little bit risky almost to use such a um, recognizable title for a book, but. After I start to read this thing, which I, by the way, not completed, makes perfect sense. <laughs> okay. So the name of the book, by the way, is The Devil in the Details. And according to The Spine and according to what I am reading, Alan Dale is actually the co-author, um, which in reality is true. But at the same time, I, I think this is his book. And by the by, I don't have Malcolm Blunt's uh, phone number. So... 
I can't call him and ask him to do an interview, but we'll get into that as we go. Alan Dale. <laughs> now, Hi I know there. that's a weird introduction. Um, but, <laughs> Is that what that was? Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I love this because you're, you're one of the most intelligent and articulate people that has not up to this point here uh, released a book in the uh, JFK education hmm, stratosphere. You're one of those people that I always wondered why there isn't a book from you. Um, but then again, maybe you'll explain that too, why this is the first one. Anyway, yeah. we'll get there. Alan Dale first. How you doing? <laughs> I'm happy to be with you always. I appreciate your studies and your, your attitude about approaching different aspects of a number of different complexities, which are necessary for serious scrutiny, serious scholarship in the areas related to studying President Kennedy's assassination, and more importantly, having some sense of who he was in life, how significant his life was, which, after all, is the reason that his death is also significant. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely true. And uh, so, some people find my, my examinations of these things and my uh, explanations to be a bit coarse, um, but I, I, I like to examine the reality as opposed to the mythology. And that is difficult, uh, almost no matter how it is you approach, not only his life, but his death. Um, it, it, it is difficult to evade the fables. It is difficult to evade, um, certain politically motivated realities with which, uh, people decide to filter the actual events, the actual man, the circumstances of the time. And uh, so so I try to uh, shake those things up and readjust them often because I think a more realistic point of view will get us to a, a greater level of understanding and indeed bring us to a, a, a better point as far as uh, being able to examine things that are happening in real time, you know, right now. Um and and again, it's 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 a difficult thing to do, especially dealing with something that has sort of lost its luster as far as the media goes. And uh, uh, post fiftieth anniversary, I would say, uh, is getting less and less attention, despite the you know mild blip of attention that was given in twenty seventeen when we waited for documentation to be released, and it kind of landed with a fizzle, and then didn't completely land. And ah, discussion for another day, but. Yeah, well, all of that is good and true. Um, I can tell you a couple of things, one of which is that the next scheduled uh, re-evaluation, um, in other words, uh, an appointed um, review of the remaining materials which were not released in 2017 or in 2018, uh, is April of next year. So we're now about five months from the next scheduled review, at which point I suspect something similar will happen and uh, a claim will be made to uh, the President of the United States that certain materials that are still withheld must continue to be held uh, for reasons of national security. Mm. And there are those who, you know, by political means, feel that the president-elect might be more sympathetic 
Yeah, I to, don't think so. To transparency, and I, I remind you that this is Barack Obama's vice president. Mm-hmm. And um, <clears throat> again, I know it's not popular in some circles to say, but Barack Obama was not a transparent president. <laughs> okay, That's an understatement, but we're not here to go into all of that, as I know. But I know that I also know that you and I both would uh, be interested in exploring some of those themes. Oh, and listen, I open invite for as uh, as April approaches. I mean, uh, a birthday present would be to go over these things with you, actually. <laughs> so uh, if you want to return and do that, absolutely. But yeah, today, let's get back to basics. And the basics are this book. Now, it's not a basic book. Um, first thing I'm going to tell the listener right now is that it is a dialogue. Uh, in, in, in large part, now again, I have not completed it, but it appears to me to be a, a dialogue. And first, well, you know, who is Alan Dale? If somebody goes, I have no idea who this guy is, he sounds interesting, but who is he? Uh, why is it that, uh, he's of interest to us as far as somebody who might have written something that would be relevant if I were to, uh, be studying any of this, um, Let's just call it deep political intrigue that has existed in the uh, American historiography, if you will. Um, mm-hmm. So Good why word. why is Alan Dale interesting? Uh, let's let's start with you know your association with a particular organization, and maybe give people a short summary of uh, who you are. I mean, we could one day talk about your uh, your your career as a musician, but that's not today. So. <laughs> Let's get to the things that are relevant uh, that would make people go, oh, this is who this guy is. And uh, then we've got to get to the named co-author on the spine, the other individual who the uh, dialogue is, well, with. (laughs) So go ahead. (laughs) Um, Hi, Chuck. My name is Alan Dale. I'm an alcoholic. Uh, Well, that's okay because I was (laughs) a drug addict. It's okay. I was confused there. It's just routine. It's so uh, my my position in relation to our mutual interest uh, includes the fact that I am uh, prime. I am a, an administrative and research assistant to Dr. John Newman, who's a career strategic intelligence cryptologic analyst for the United States Army. Was promoted to become a, an intelligence management authority, where he had uh, he was responsible for managing uh, two separate teams of individuals who comprised a group of data collectors as well as. Um, their uh, counterparts in a particular management group, uh, data analysts. So he was responsible for the procedures and the protocols and the necessary processes by which intelligence is gathered. That means information is collected, and then it goes through a process of refinement um, and is, you know, run back and forth um, between team of analysts and then uh, uh, collectors who might be asked to go back out to the field with a more specific area of focus. And he ultimately became, uh, he accepted a special appointment to be military assistant to the director of the National Security Agency, General William Odom, during General Odom's period as the director of the NSA. So I have the privilege or 
god-awful burden of um, assisting Dr. Newman. We've got a small team, which I refer to as a special group augmented, Mm -hmm. uh, of distinguished and thoughtful people who assist Dr. Newman. My dear friend Jay Harvey has been with him for 26 years now or something like that. Maybe more than that. Maybe it's more than that, actually. Um, And uh, that's an interesting place to be because we're – deeply uh, immersed in very strong currents um, that I think are relevant in terms of the point that you made, understanding our past um, because it helps illuminate uh, our understanding of our present. Mm. And that's what we're engaged uh, to do in several different books, uh, the first of which, the first of many that are consequential is something that was published in 1992, uh, maybe 1991, JFK in Vietnam, mm-hmm. uh, revised and updated uh, in 2017 for a second edition. In addition to that, I'm, I serve uh, our nation's leading Freedom of Information Act attorney, James H. Lazar. Um, I am the executive director of the Assassination Archives and Research Center. And that also is an interesting place to be. I'm responsible for administration and content on a number of different websites, including uh, aarclibrary.org and jfkjmn.com. My own interview program, to which you alluded, was uh, is something of, of which I'm proud, honestly, because I've had such extraordinary privileges of being allowed to spend time online recorded conversation with people of the stature of Professor Peter Dale Scott and many others uh, and that's jfkconversations.com which includes a very valuable supplement uh, provided by my dear friend uh, Greg Parker uh, Australian researcher uh, author of um an extraordinary and worthwhile uh, book called Lee Harvey Oswald's Cold War. And um, there is a supplement to that, uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's Cold War supplement, available only at myjfkconversations.com. And I recommend it very highly because, like some of the rest of us, uh, Greg is very focused um, on the identity of a young man named Lee Oswald and the problems associated with differentiating and untangling attributes which are associated with more than a single Oswald figure within the documentary record of the American intelligence agencies between 1959 and 1963. Right. Now, when you referenced uh, uh, Dr. Newman's book, JFK in Vietnam, just a, a little, I, I don't know if I've ever actually told you this, but <clears throat> you do realize that uh, that book literally is one of the primary motivators that caused me to uh, have to investigate for myself uh, a great many things because I felt a, uh, a personal uh, connection to this idea that indeed we may not have had to suffer the the Vietnam War um and in in its form as I knew it as I grew up around it as it affected my life directly yes. um 
And so I, I think I've articulated this to you, and I know I've, I've said it publicly several yeah, times. Yeah, we've talked. Yeah, we talked about it in Dallas, actually. Yeah, and uh, so, you know, that in and of itself is uh, – is a remarkable thing that you mentioned there. The JFK conversations, by the way, if you're somebody who is interested in the case and you have not, because I don't know exactly how popular they are. Uh, I know that anybody who is deep into research has probably listened to all of them. Um, but some other casual observers may not have. And uh, I would definitely uh, recommend that you look into that. And uh, <clears throat> Mr. Parker's been on the show before, but it was several years ago. I've lost contact with him. But um, but honestly, I mean, there 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 is a lot of work, and uh, the the you, you very casually mentioned your uh, your your role over at the uh, AARC, I believe. I always mix up those letters, by the way, because you're of not the... alone, my dear brother. You're not alone. <laughs> <laughs> you, you know what it is because you you get so used to saying AARB, and you, right. you start to mix it up a little bit. But but, but here's here's the funny thing. There is no such thing, at least in the context of our worlds, uh, as the AARB. It's always properly ARRB, the Assassination Records Review Board. Right. And I have said it correctly about 2% of the time that I've addressed it in public. So like like you, I almost always have said AARB. And then now to keep track of my own organization, the Assassination Archives and Research Center, that's AARB. RC, Assassination Archives and Research Center. Yeah, that's right. So, right. so, and of course, all the the you know the the cocktails in the afternoon probably doesn't help. No, listen, all those things contribute to it. But I'm just saying, some people might start to scramble the letters, and there's a reason yes. for it. They they seem very similar. Uh, they are of uh, equal importance, though. I got to tell you that the uh, the AARC was something that uh, I was recommending to people long before I had a show or anything like that, where they would say, well, where is it that I can read stuff like, oh, I don't know, the church committee's documents? That's and, right. And I'd say, well, you can go here because these guys have it out in public, and they've had it there for a long time. I mean, I'm very sure that it has been on the Internet, at least, uh, things like the uh, the House Select Committee volumes, which, you know, were, were not easily available to a lot of people uh, some years ago. A lot of the historical record, um, a lot of the official record was, was available there now for well over the past, I don't know, 15 years at least. I Something think. like that. I would say, honestly, I would credit uh, first uh, Jim Lazar, who is an unsung or insufficiently sung hero, uh, responsible for the release of tons of materials prior to the 1992 President John F. Kennedy Assassination Records Collection Act. He's uh, our nation's most successful Freedom of Information Act attorney, mm -hmm. and his job as president of the AARC has been to engage federal agencies, plural, in district court in uh, Washington, D.C., to get them to comply with the law which sometimes is very arduous and frustrating process, as you can imagine. Right. I also would want to credit uh, both uh, my predecessor as executive director, the late Jerry Polikoff, uh, who was involved in uh, early decisions about our online presence, and maybe especially uh, Rex Bradford of the Mary Farrell Foundation, without whom I think an awful lot of the 
the move towards uh, digitizing paper documents, making them available online to anyone who goes to either of our websites. Uh, Rex manages history-matters.org, I think, or com, one or the other. Mm -hmm. And also, of course, Mary Farrell um, Foundation, maryfarrell.org, and... Uh, and my, uh, as I said, I'm responsible for administration and content. If you go to aarclibrary.org, mm -hmm. you will find things of interest. Of that, I'm certain. No, absolutely true. So with all of that having been said, and uh, there's more to Allendale than that, but that will suffice. Uh, Malcolm Blunt. Now, there's a name yeah. that is well-known in certain circles, but yeah. to be honest with you, is not a headline name. He's not the guy that they try and get on national or international radio shows or even right. podcasters like myself don't seek out Malcolm Blunt. Now, I'll tell you the funny thing is that the majority of people that are seen as authorities on the case um, <clears throat> do consult with Malcolm Blunt. <laughs> okay. He is um, the ultimate example of a figure of consequence behind the scenes. There, there is the, you know, one line summary, but I mean, who is Malcolm Blunt exactly? Or maybe I should ask you more accurately, who is Malcolm Blunt to you? Because, That's a great question. Yeah. That's a brilliant question. Uh, he's uh, a heroic figure to me. He's a person who has distinguished himself uh, as an ultimate scholar. His areas of expertise uh, include an encyclopedic awareness of um, what he has retained by reading. I suspect he spent more time uh, reading the, the records that have been released to us, not merely CIA records. So we're talking about JFK assassination related materials, and we're talking about a real spectrum of, of the various federal agencies, uh, the, um, competing intelligence agencies internationally. He's deeply, deeply knowledgeable about the interior of the various uh, forms of Soviet intelligence. Uh, during the Cold War, he is deeply, deeply informed about uh, British intelligence and uh, other other places um, that are relevant to having a sense of the complexities of the intelligence networks and um, their relationships to each other during the Cold War. And, you know, for in practical terms, I think the, the reason that he, as you've correctly asserted, he is a resource for an enormous number of important and serious and uh, professional investigators. Mm -hmm. uh, he is a real walking encyclopedia about the internal systems management authorities of the CIA during the Cold War, uh, the FBI, um, uh, the uh, of, of customs, immigration, naturalization, and the kind of uh, underlying continuities, the connective tissue below the surface between all of those various places that are touched upon uh, if you make a very serious um, attempt to to demystify the story of Lee Oswald. Mm. 
And, and this includes, by the way, now, now this might have been included in your statement, but let me uh, maybe go back over it. If I were to sit and diagram or write, you know, an entire volume on the interactivity between different agencies, mm-hmm. how they handled things, how those communications um, flowed between them and through them. Uh, if I put Malcolm Blunt and John Newman both on my payroll, I've got it. Uh, that, that's, that's all I'm going to say there. I, I, I think that's accurate. <laughs> what do you say, uh, Alan? I think that you are prescient uh, because you may not have gotten to Chapter 5, and Chapter 5 in, in the book uh, to which you refer, for which I am in part responsible, The Devil is in the Details, Alan Dale with Malcolm Blunt on the assassination of President Kennedy. Chapter 5 is a transcript of seven hours, which I recorded, seven hours of recorded conversation between Malcolm and Dr. Newman. And so, you know, spy literature dialogue-wise, it is um, it is kind of a dream come true. And uh, I think my, ho- my hope is that people will not be intimidated and not be overwhelmed, will find find it worthwhile to invest the necessary time at their own pace to go into some of the depths that are covered within these 10 transcribed separate conversations and find it both uh, informative and entertaining. Mm. No, I have not gotten to Chapter 5, but uh, by tonight I will be there because now you have me uh, (laughs) very interested to uh, yeah. to read what that conversation is like. But now let's get into the book a bit because, you know, again, I think it's uh, interesting. You don't often get uh, conversations being transcribed. Now, I will tell you that as somebody who's gone through a lot of literature uh, on this case, but also just historical literature in general, revisionist history, uh, standard history, uh, you know, the, the historians the government hires, doesn't matter. Fact is that quite often um, just placed in context usually, but not always, are uh, things like what this book appears to be in whole, uh, which is interesting to me. I mean, I love to read interviews, even, you know, even when it was the, uh, the, the ridiculous, dry and almost, I don't know, uh, uh, narcoleptic uh, stuff that was in the Warren Commission. Okay, which will put you to sleep if you actually read the testimonies. Ugh, it 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 is it it's tough. I'm sorry. Well said. And there's one other thing that I know is right up your alley that is so right for you. Professionals in every field talk differently with each other. They communicate differently than they do when they're talking to people who are not professionals. Right. So this is an insider's kind of fly-on-the-wall kind of thing. And uh, I'm very – I'll be candid with you, my dear brother. Um, I'm very proud of the the work. I'm proud – I'm grateful to be allowed to participate, and uh, and I'm very pleased with how the book turned out. Right. Well, but it's an interesting thought process here because you could have taken these interviews, uh, you could have taken these discussions more accurately, and you you could have uh, turned them into narrative form. Um, and you didn't do that. Now, that's not a matter of being like, say, lazy. You didn't go through another step of the process. I think that by doing it this way, you've actually preserved 
a great deal more information that uh, that is going to become extremely evident to me as I go further into this book. Um, and I, I would say that if you appreciate the the template that I use, which on this show, it's about a conversation, Alan. It's always that. Um, and sometimes I, I do find myself speaking to people that have mutual interests in shorthand. Um, and when that occurs, especially if we have shared life experiences or something like that, um, the audience that is paying close attention does react to the fact that I realize I'm hearing two guys or two people in some cases, you know, it might be a woman. Mostly I interview guys. I don't know why that is. It used to be a lot of women, but, uh, at this point I, you, I'm hearing two guys that I, I would not normally hear having this discussion. Mm-hmm. So we're, we're having sometimes private conversations in public. Exactly. And I, I think that that is exactly what I'm holding in my hands here. And, uh, you know, it, it, later on, I want to talk about the cover art and everything, but I want to stick on this, on this idea that you preserved conversations here. Um, and it's not just simple transcription. Actually, there seems to be a structure in mind. Well, uh, there as we e- go. emerges, uh, a structure emerges. Things, as you know, e- everything that is artistic in any way takes on a life of its own. And much to my surprise, I truly was, because we were all doing other things in between these particular discussions, which were spread out over a period of four and a half years, uh, or more actually, five, five years, uh, August of 2014 through uh, November of last year and uh, Malcolm continuing to send me little messages and little articles and things, commentaries, uh, right up until literally uh, the last possible moment um, before sending the manuscript for publication. Um, and things do take on a life of their own. There is a chronology to this that is that you can follow. Uh, it is most evident to me, for instance, that I, I became gradually sufficiently knowledgeable to really feel like, well, maybe I'm not completely out of place. Maybe it's not preposterous beyond belief that I should be the one uh, having the privilege of these conversations. Uh, I think I talked to you once about how I, my first conversation with Malcolm to be recorded, uh, I was very nervous. Um, uh, Bill Simpich, our dear brother, Bill Simpich, who's a brilliant civil rights attorney in, on the West Coast and mm-hmm. deeply uh, immersed um, researcher, uh, done groundbreaking work uh, on Mexico City, uh, available online at Mary Farrell called State Secret. Uh, wiretapping in Mexico City, double agents in the framing of Lee Oswald, which is free and I recommend uh, by Bill Simpich. Uh, Bill introduced me to some curmudgeon looking old, older gentleman who looked like he came right out of a John le Carre novel. You know, uh, I mean, we're talking about a guy who literally, if you saw him in a picture with James Angleton, you wouldn't think twice because you think, yeah, those are spies. And uh, I didn't know who Malcolm was, and uh, and when I inquired, uh, Bill's exact words to me were, "He's the real deal." Mm. And See, uh, what that meant, yeah. 
At the time, I didn't know. But over the gradual process of us becoming better acquainted, uh, my making detailed notes, every opportunity I had to speak with him and to listen to his answers to my questions. And you and I can get more deep during this conversation, if you like, we can get more we can be a little more detailed about some of the specific areas to which he referred, the specific things that were of uh, of significance to him in terms of his focus. I, I grew over a period of years, and I think that helped me come to the realization, whether I had realized it earlier or not, perhaps not, eventually I came to the realization that this stuff is too valuable not to make available. So that's why the book exists. Right. And Bill Simpich, just for the record, has also been, uh, you know, part of, uh, various presentations, uh, what they called a mock trial a few years ago, which was an interesting kind of, uh, legal presentation regarding the case against Oswald. Um, but I, I, I don't know if I would call it a mock trial. And certainly it wasn't that, uh, ridiculousness that, uh, like say Vince Bugliosi participated in. It wasn't something like that. Uh, but it was an interesting presentation. Bill is, uh, extremely knowledgeable and is one of the few lawyers I don't hate automatically. So, uh, you know, and, and he's been on the show as well. Um, but you know, here's, here's where I want to start with this actually, if you don't mind, because the introduction in the first place is, uh, written by John Newman. Yeah, I couldn't get anybody else. Okay. <laughs> Well, if that's your only go-to, I gotta tell you, uh, Alan, I don't feel bad for you. You know, know. that? I know. I, I can understand. I can understand. It's like, uh, you know, I was hopeful that some people might contribute blurbs because uh, I've been engaged very deeply in the publication of a number of, of very serious people's books, um, you know, with, in which I was allowed to contribute or participate, but I'd never seen the process through from beginning to absolute, you know, final stage. Mm. And at some point I realized that getting some blurbs from, from a number of the people that I most admire would be helpful. And it turned out what a blessing uh, that process turned out to be because so many great people, generous and brilliant people wanted to, participate to be able to acknowledge the extent to which their work and their own perceptions, their own journey has been uh, has benefited because of the influence of this extraordinary British scholar. Um, my introduction to um, one of uh, the interviews with uh, Malcolm some time ago, I said he's uh, uh, the esteemed Malcolm Blunt, independent investigator of the truth with an unbiased instinct for what is important and and what is not in the details of President Kennedy's assassination. And I think that that, that helps summarize. He's a British intelligence analyst. He's a career uh, psychiatric support uh, therapist um, and um there are all kinds of things about that that I think are relevant in terms of the unique intelligence that he <clears throat> embodies, which when focused on the various deep complexities associated with the necessary range of uh, things to be considered, if you want to have a comprehensive uh, as, uh, 
sense of where we are in relation to the JFK story, I can hardly think of anyone um, better suited, which is why I would say to you, as I would to really to others, that this is a person who has distinguished himself as a scholar, but who is also uh, distinguished in terms of his um, his spirit uh, of generosity. His, mm. his, he's a, an extraordinary mind, an extraordinary heart, who is one of the rarest combinations of the best qualities that are sometimes um, most elusive if we're searching for generosity and uh, and sharing. He, he, he has not been possessive. That's what I'm trying to say. Right. He, he has learned things that are extremely significant to very serious scholars. And, uh, and he hasn't been possessive about it. He hasn't said, I can't talk about this and I want you to sign something so that you won't talk about it until I publish my book at some ungodly future date. Instead. Which is a very common thing. Very in, common. And, uh, and yeah. that's part of our problem. Mm -hmm. You know, that's part of our problem. He's not interested in that. And he could care less about, about credit. He has gone along with my determination to make this thing into a, something that exists and has a life of its own. But he did so, as he has been quick to admit, with some reluctance. Uh, if I was to depict him in a single frame, you know, pen and ink uh, cartoon, uh, he would have been a disembodied arm behind a potted plant at a conference with a, a fist in which was a, a clenched fist offering secret documents, you know, that are a part of the public record, but people haven't bothered to avail themselves. And so from behind a potted plant, he's offering these invaluable uh, pieces of evidence to help inform our to, – to more deeply inform our appreciation of the complexity of what is in the documentary record, which is, you know, the JFK research community, to be blunt, so to speak, mm -hmm. uh, is full of supposition and uh, a lot of people who don't know the difference between conjecture and fact. And uh, Malcolm's position is, have you read all of the FBI field files pertaining to the Oswald figure in New York City or New Orleans or in Texas, you know, are, are you sufficiently knowledgeable about the process by which information in 1959 was disseminated within the agency through the Office of Central Reference and its its component, uh, the Office of Mail Logistics, and are you aware of a of the innumerable examples of aberrations in protocol or ab abnormalities in terms of an internal system that is designed by professionals for a reason which in which work perfectly well until the introduction of materials associated with a figure named Lee Oswald. Mm. How come? And if you don't know about any of that stuff, upon what are you basing your absolutely certain declarations that you know such and such about who killed President Kennedy. See, so now, he's not conclusive. He's saying, yeah. hey, why don't we study all of this stuff and work together, and then maybe that'll bring us closer to ultimate realization. Well, see, now, from a distance, uh, a lot of this was uh, conveyed to me by John Newman because his presentations would repeatedly uh, show that, look, if you don't understand, you, you can even read the documents. Mm -hmm. But if you don't understand the system through which it traveled, 
Bingo. If you don't understand why certain people are checking it out or who is checking it out or even that there is a sheet that shows you who handled the file, well, uh, you know. Well, I, I'm taking a page from your book when I say, uh, you know, you're, that's a sophisticated um, interpretation of some of the overall uh, message uh, that you get from paying attention to Dr. Newman. I know it's not for everybody. Um, but it is for the kinds of people who have the discipline to to be patient, to do the real hard work, to be right. able to get to a place where you recognize that something is is abnormal only as the result of invest in, investing the necessary years to trying to understand what the system looks like when it's functioning normally. If you don't understand how the system works – how does how do the various components within the agency, for instance, function in relation to each other or the distinctions between executives in in a particular office versus what's happening in the field and the kinds of shortcuts that people who know what the street, for lack of a better term, is what the street requires and will sometimes just skip over the bureaucratic necessities to make something happen, um, you know, and, and having an, a really to the fullest extent that is possible, knowing who the individual players on the playing field in all of these different places, right. knowing where they came from, and study and knowing where they end up and where their careers coincide and where they're working together in areas. Uh, I, I mean, it's it's an enormous uh, field to to undertake, and I can see that I understand uh, that it's. It's not for everybody, and but thank God it's for some people. Right. And Dr. Newman and Malcolm found each other and found in each other uh, a great kinship uh, in terms of their specific areas of expertise, their specific areas of training, and their natural inclination to ask better questions over time as opposed to seeking short and com comprehensive answers where the questions change the more we learn the questions evolve you know right and they found each other and we're it's to our benefit no absolutely true now i have an unusual question here which might actually consume the last 15 minutes of this hour and then we're going to take a break okay. uh because i want to uh sort of uh, uh reorient ourselves and get straight into just the book for a bit um, we've gone over a bunch of general topics. We've uh, identified the people involved in the writing of this book, and uh, we've done that sufficiently and given people an idea of why it is this is a relevant piece of work. Uh, you know, no offense to you again, Alan. I, I, I want to make sure that we explain to people and not just say this is something you should read and drop it in front of them. Um, <laughs> you know, so I appreciate uh, you taking the time to do this. But now this might sound like a very unfair question, but let's see if we can get through it. Um, we, we talked about Bill and he brings his skill set. He brings his legal mind. He brings his profession. We talk yeah. about Malcolm and obviously uh, his use of psychology, which is That's evident right. in his communications with a lot of people, to be honest with you. Yes. He, uh, just my general observation and very limited, communicates to people and adjusts to their level as he communicates with them. Definitely a hallmark of someone who has studied psychology. 
but also has this mind that is able to absorb, understand, and really be a systems analyst in a organic sort of way. Um, Dr. Newman has his experience in the intelligence community (laughs) and therefore has a firsthand understanding of how certain things work and a secondary, very sort of um, intercultural understanding because he was steeped in it for so many years. So that's his skill set. A lot of people bring different skill sets to their investigation and their work in this case. Uh, at some point, I'm going to have to reveal <laughs> that uh, what gave me insights into certain parts of this case is my uh, unique sort of, um, well, life experience in uh, the invisible part of America, so to speak. The, the, the criminality, which is constant, uh, and I was, up until my adulthood, very well steeped in, uh, in, in the criminal underworld and overworld. <laughs> so... Thing is, I'm curious, though, about you. What skill set do you bring? Because I I see skills that you have as an interviewer that are, mm, they're they're not like mine. Mine is usually to have a conversation. And quite honestly, I can control and I can manipulate a conversation to a degree that it is uh, good for presentation and I can usually make the individual that's participating with me very comfortable and I can usually get them to go into areas that, you know, I might not have gone into this, but since we mention it and, you know, I'm good at that sort of thing, um, which again is tied to my ability to have survived in the uh, invisible part of America. That's, and not only survived, but actually got into a place of some stature and increasing recognizability. Which, yeah, I mean, and, and again, I've, I've had an interesting path to, uh, to where I'm at, but, but that's a story for another day. What is the skill set that you would say you brought to this arena, if you will? You've been around a while. Um, you, you definitely seem to have organizational skills because you're, you're one of those people who can organize, uh, complex things. So I see that as part of your skill set, but a lot of people can do that and are not even remotely capable of navigating uh, the the complexities. I keep using that word. The complexities yeah. <laughs> in this world. Yeah. Um, so what, what skill sets would you say you brought to the table initially coming into the case? And, uh, and, and how is it that you wind up conducting this uh, very unique, again, dialogue that I see, but is going to uh, apparently in Chapter 5 going to change some more for me. It's not just going to be a dialogue that you're involved in. Mm-hmm. But, you know, maybe you can explain to me what your skill sets are here, uh, whether they were organic or earned over recent times, yeah. um, you know, and, and uh, tell me where you where you stand. Yeah, it's an interesting question. Uh, I'm your guest, and I'm grateful to you always. I personally would not I, – I would have some uh, reticence about using the term skill sets, but I can talk to you candidly and honestly, and maybe, maybe, I, maybe it's appropriate that I share with you some things that I may never have discussed uh, with you and that I've only addressed publicly in recent months – uh, and that is the extent to which my childhood, uh, I was a passenger in my parents' lives, um, and they happened to be among the millions of people who became, uh, who were affected by and inspired by President Kennedy. 
uh, had personal interaction with him as a camp as a uh, candidate and like millions and millions and millions and millions of people around the world uh the first case of global mourning in human history uh they were shocked beyond belief uh by the news 2 years 10 months and 2 days into his presidency that it was over um so that was a bewildering experience for a lot of thoughtful people it was bewildering they they knew nothing about president garfield they certainly knew hardly anything about president mckinley although they probably knew quite a bit about his vice president mm. um and they knew a little bit about abraham lincoln but they were far removed emotionally from those those consequential political assassinations and while there were consequential political assassinations from uh friends ferdinand uh to mahatma gandhi they had not been personally impacted in a way that you have to understand is is something that took place in the different era when people had survived world war 2 people of my parents generation they felt that we were all in this together and that even republicans with whom they might have disagreed were still people of integrity and they my father's attitude as a world war 2 veteran is he respected the hell out of dwight eisenhower even though they supported adlai stevenson um it was a different age they for better or worse they transferred their passion and their commitment to participate during a period of uh of relatively unprecedented transition in american society mm-hmm. uh they aligned themselves with what they saw as a progressive um liberal political ideology embodied by robert f kennedy and so they focused on him as a public figure they admired him and they wanted to you know they basically transferred their affection and their admiration for jfk they transferred to bobby and uh so they get they were introduced to him at a campaign or at a uh, political event at a college in new albany indiana in 1966 in which i was allowed to participate as a 6-year-old and I did and I remember it vividly uh without embellishment I remember it vividly because I I had never seen anyone with eyes as blue as Robert Kennedy's when I shook hands with him so I got to have an official introduction to him that was memorable to me because I knew who he was 2 years later unfortunately my parents had decided that the thing to do was to spend uh Tuesday June 4th driving elderly voters as many as could be squeezed into their car at a time in separate shifts my mom in the morning my father in the afternoon uh driving people to the polls who would vote for Robert Kennedy and not for Eugene McCarthy and uh and so I was in the embassy ballroom during the day and did not see the senator he was actually at John Frankenheimer's house but I had hoped I would get to see him and I thought it was a party kind of atmosphere I expected there to be hats and noisemakers you know because that's what I associated with parties because new year's day my dad would have hats and noisemakers for me as a professional musician and uh and the next morning I was startled uh to discover that my father was not asleep the way he normally would be uh and instead very early was awake and sitting in front of a television with his fingers clasped in front of him 
and uh, leaning towards television. And I don't know if I asked what was going on. I, I may have. But what I remember very clearly my father saying to me was they should take the guy who did this and machine gun him against a wall. And uh, that's really how I learned that the worst thing in the whole world had happened that night. And the, and so President or Senator Kennedy lived for 25 and a half hours, died at 1.44 a.m. on uh, June 6th. And uh, it was a very significant impact on the lives of my parents, and it had long-term damaging consequences to their lives. Uh, they would never participate in a public event uh, or public campaign, any kind of political thing again. It was all over for them. And I, I, I was an only child, and I think I suffered in ways that I did not understand at the time and recently have come to terms with, was able finally to discuss that night of June 4th uh, with my dad, uh, spent the last five weeks of his life at his bedside. He was completely lucid, and I decided that this was in January 2015, and I decided I should talk to him about that night because I had never, I they never talked about it with me. I don't think they ever talked about it with anybody for the rest of their lives. But before it was too late, and while he was lucid, I asked him uh, something about that night. The first thing he said was that he heard the shots coming from the kitchen pantry. And mm. uh, and I had never known that. And it was so shocking to me that that was the last thing that I, I mean, that was the end of the conversation. And, uh, you know, that's a drag. All of it's a horrible drag. So what I bring first is um, a, a, a deep connection to the meaning of these guys' lives and the consequences of their deaths, which created, you know, I would say, honestly, created wounds which can never heal. Um, and so because of the influence of a couple of people in particular, including Dr. Newman and Malcolm, a very, very close, brilliant and extraordinary, talented friend of mine named Darlene Davis, who actually said something just out in the open to me uh, not very long ago that was helpful to me because I had said to her that I'd been haunted by the idea that I, if I'd been awake instead of asleep at night, that night while my parents were in the ballroom, if I had been there, maybe I could have been in the right place at the right time to have affected some change in the outcome of, of the attack on Senator Kennedy, and she basically just said to me that, uh, in a way, I've been protecting Robert Kennedy. I've been defending him, in a way, my whole life. Mm. And so it's love, you know. It's love and grief and resentment that the bad guys got away with these terrible things that created uh, the world in which we live today, um, in addition to which I've always been drawn, maybe because of that experience when I was eight years old, maybe that's the key to the whole thing for me. I was drawn to works of philosophy, the standard stuff, all of the basic Greek foundation stuff through all the Western stuff. And mm. uh, ultimately, following Robert Kennedy's example and dealing with Albert Camus and uh, 
you know, <laughs> a, a whole hell of a lot of what I learned about his journey uh, influenced my own my own journey, you know, and I feel like I'm a better person as the result of that. And most of, most of all, I should say, I'm honored to be able to participate in something that is meaningful to me uh, in the company of people that I love and admire. And you'll note uh, one of the most extraordinary well, two of the most extraordinary things, or perhaps more, uh, my friend Jeff Morley, who's a very dear brother of mine, he agreed to participate with me as a favor. He loves Malcolm too, but I was very nervous. Mm -hmm. uh, so chapter one is a conversation that includes Washington Post, uh, you know, reporter and uh, important author, uh, Jefferson Morley. He helped me because I was so nervous and felt unqualified to be alone with Malcolm in a microphone. And so he participated and that encouraged me and helped me. Uh, Dr. Newman wrote both an introduction to the book and an afterward, which is extraordinary. Professor Peter Dale Scott, who is our ultimate living scholar, uh, he gave me a beautiful blurb on the back cover. My dear brother, Dan Hardway, who is a principal investigator assigned to the agency, along with Eddie Lopez, Gaten Fonzie, uh, during the House Select Committee on Assassinations, he gave me a blurb and I and the one of all, honestly, I suppose, is one for which I did not have to ask, and it was offered to me uh, rather generously by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And so Bobby Jr. said, Malcolm Blunt's encyclopedic knowledge of the inner workings of the CIA during the era of the Cold War is unrivaled. He is the Rosetta Stone for coded intelligence agency cables. Allendale's discussions with Blunt offer an astonishing range of depth and details essential to anyone with an interest in understanding President Kennedy's murder and the hidden machinations of U.S. spy bureaucracies. Mm -hmm. Robert F. Kennedy Jr., President Waterkeeper Alliance, author of American Values, Lessons I Learned from My Family. So that's, that's an extraordinary gift. And uh, the first thing I should say is I'm grateful to all who contributed to making this work possible. Mm. No, that's uh, an excellent and complete answer. <clears throat> and now, now I'll poke you with one last hard question before we go to break. <laughs> um, away. And, and here's the thing: I, I, I feel I, I feel comfortable doing this. Um, and it may sound a bit odd, but here's the thing: <clears throat> you're slightly older than me. And but better preserved, ironically. Oh, so, uh, of course. <laughs> Who can figure that? I'm a mess. I know this. It's okay. Listen, uh, chronologically, you're slightly older than me. Okay. In reality, you're in. We're both old souls. That I know. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Um, but and and believe me, my body's older than yours. But anyhow, back to it. Um, there is a difference in your sort of um, spiritual, psychological endocrine system uh, when you're slightly older than me. And why? Because you were around and living and breathing, even as a child, uh, in a time when I feel like progressive figures were cut down. Now, some people would say it was all part of a... Uh, you know, a well-devised program, but everybody from Medgar Evers to Bobby Kennedy, Medgar Evers, whose assassination preceded uh, John F. Kennedy's. That's correct. Uh, but but going on forward all the way through Dr. King and then punctuated with Bobby Kennedy's murder, um, it, it it is a remarkable time to have absorbed 
that continuous cycle of grief, to be honest, in that five years right there. Good phrase. Um, and now I did not have that experience. I was born in 1972. Now I started learning how to read newspapers in 1975. They were still talking about Watergate. And what did I endure after that? The end of the Vietnam War, the different disclosures publicly that maybe our CIA had been out to murder people. These were things that caught my attention as a reading toddler of newspapers, okay? Yeah. So my mindset is not the same as yours That's because right. I lived in the aftermath of that. I wasn't around for the civil unrest mm -hmm. during that time. I was born right after it. Mm -hmm. uh, so there is a, a, a shift there. There is something that you were sort of steeped in, whether voluntarily or involuntarily. No, I, exactly. I was immersed without choice. Right. And and it was a different time for me coming in because, again, the Vietnam War is ending. It's not beginning as it was when you were a toddler. You know what I mean? As far as the, the major action, the impact that would be on our society, stuff like this. Those assassinations were things of the past to me already. But... Still, I had a connection. So I'm curious about this. Do you think that that in and of itself, without your parents, you know, being a passenger in your parents' life, that's an interesting phrase as well. Um, and it is true. But you're also not just a passenger in their life. They're on the highway with everybody else. And during that time, do you think that this had the effect all by itself without your parents' influence? to maybe also motivate you to explore things as you did. Uh, because I am very aware that my earliest memories are the things that really pushed me into, into the direction that I wound up in. So I'm curious if you feel the same way, but you're coming from, again, a different, uh, a different stew. You know what I mean? We're both carrots in a pot somewhere, but your stew is definitely different than mine. Yeah, I think we probably have no choice um, about these kinds of influential elements. Uh, I, I think that uh, another factor that I am I would consider is that because my dad was a musician and because I started playing music so early, uh, I, there was never really any thought from my perspective about not being a professional musician. Uh, because I was, you know, being trained to be that from a very early age. In fact, uh, traveling, I traveled extensively throughout my childhood, and I was only ever around musicians and bartenders. Those are the only people that I really got to know. So being somebody who, for lack of a better term, and, you know, with without apology, uh, was trained to, to live an artistic life and to have an uh, artistic pursuit which is always a work in progress, you know, just like trying to become who who are you? What is your destiny? Uh, what Dr. Newman refers to as your dharma. Uh, learning to do your job, which presents itself to you as an opportunity. Mm -hmm. And then it's up to you to do the best you can to either abide by that or to be in conflict with it by doing something that you're maybe not suited to do or maybe not meant to do. Mm -hmm. And so by being having an artistic sort of framework, uh, I was given an awful lot. Part of it is that I was given a lot of spare time. Uh, the fact that my parents never, ever discussed and never sought 
the help that they desperately needed, to be honest with you, to cope with their grief and the psychological and emotional ramifications of uh, that, the experience that they shared um, in 1968. Uh, I didn't have anybody to talk to about any of it, and I was seeking something without being cognizant of whatever it was that I was seeking. So I immersed myself in books and I found my way into philosophy. And um, I felt uh, a, an urgent necessity to read as much as I could, to understand as much as I felt I could about as many things as um, as were interesting to me, quite a lot of which had to do with things that are relevant to uh understanding one's self in relation to the times in which you find yourself. Mm. Um, so I'm a product of, of the path that, um, that I followed through, through my earliest days. And maybe it is inevitable that I would end up doing something. I, I feel like I got really lucky. I feel like I won a lottery because I get to work with people like Dr. Newman and Jim Lazar and Jeff Morley and Rex Bradford and Bill Simpich and uh, Dan Hardway. And of course, the, my dear ultimate mentor, well, Professor Scott, that's, that's a chapter into itself, how mm. significant that guy is to me and to an awful lot of other smart people but uh well you may not realize it alan but you know you actually won more than one lottery because i've seen a great many talented people that are not even capable of being professional musicians even for a short time mm -hmm. uh you know and and some of them no no offense to you again are you know ex just so exquisitely talented i don't know why it hasn't happened but anyway the 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 point of this as my theme music is playing is to uh, remind you that I am speaking to a remarkable individual who has a book out called The Devil in the Details, and we're going to get deeper into the book itself in the next hour here on The Ocelli Effect. So I urge you to stick around because my conversation with Alan Dale will continue after this. WallStreetWindow.com Gold. Silver. The Stock Market. WallStreetWindow.com Perhaps you're invested deeply. Perhaps you're not in deep enough. Maybe you're thinking about getting started. WallStreetWindow.com Michael Swanson, the brilliant author of The War State, understood these trends professionally for many years, and now he gives you the benefit of his knowledge. WallStreetWindow.com Go there now. Go there now. Go there now. Go ahead, caller. Hey, I'm interested in the truth about the JFA assassination. Right. Well, what do you want to know? Judy Baker's wild claim, Oswald girlfriend, she knew Ruby and Barry, cancer weapons. Really? I imagine I could claim I have four wheels. It doesn't make me a wagon, but okay. Oswald was on the kill team and trying to prevent the murder of John Kennedy. Come on now. Has a real effort on the JFA assassination book into her claims? Go to Amazon.com. Enter Judith Baker in her own words. You'll get results for a digital copy of a book where Walt Brown 
Brown utilizes her own words and the known evidence in the case to get at, well, <laughs> a different perspective, let's say. You can get Judith Barry Baker in her own words from the author himself, signed, if you request it, by contacting Dr. Brown at K-I-A-S-J-F-K at AOL.com. It's a fun book, and it actually dissects the many, many fantastic claims. Judith Barry Baker in her own words. Thank you for all the great information. In denial, secret wars with airstrikes and tanks by Larry Hancock. Secret wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. Larry Hancock's book, In Denial, rips the cover off many of them. Using new files, it exposes things about the Bay of Pigs that no one has ever written about before. It shows why it really failed and why the United States did not learn from it. Secret wars became a staple of U.S. covert operations and are still happening today. It also shows why other countries today are doing secret operations with more success. This is the book that puts what some want to deny into the light. In Denial, Secret Wars with Airstrikes and Tanks. Larry Hancock. For more information, go to Larry-Hancock.com. Pick up your copy of In Denial at Amazon.com in digital or physical form. When a fan of the Ocelli Effect calls in to the Ocelli Effect. I just wanted to call in and tell you and Michael Swanson and J.P. Sicilian, all of the guests that you have, how much I love your show. Always interesting. It's always informative. I just wanted to tell you in person, on the phone, I mean, I love you. I love your show. I, I love everything you do. I will always be there to support you. You know that. We appreciate you so much. Uh, you, you have okay. no idea. Thanks. And most of our fans just send hate mail and death threats. Shelly.com. Going to Chuck O'Chelly. You are about to embark upon the great crusade. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. In company with our brave allies and brothers in arms on other fronts, your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely, man-to-man. The tide has turned. Free men of the world are marching together to victory. Good luck, and let us all beseech the blessing of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Okay. Second hour of the Ocelli Effect begins now. Now, of course, we ran a little over on the first hour, but that's okay. I can do what I want. It's my show. And my guest today is... Uh, the the co-author, according to the spine, but really the guy who put the book together. Let's let's put it that way. Uh, Alan Dale and the book is called "The Devil Is in the Details." Of course, I skipped the "is" last hour, but the proper title of the book is "The Devil Is in the Details." Okay, and so if you're typing it into your search engines, I'm sure if you skip the "is," it'll still come up. But proper name: "The Devil Is in the Details." Okay. And uh, it's an interesting book physically. Uh, I know it's available through your digital formats, uh, especially Kindle. But um, quite frankly, if, if you appreciate a physical book, I also want to tell you one other thing. And I'm not going to go too deep into this, but some books are more friendly than others. Now, anybody listening to this show knows I have visual issues. Now, I'm not saying that uh, this is a large print edition or anything. Uh, but what I am telling you is that uh, the the formatting, 
the font, the structure, the book size, everything. The physical book is uh, is nice. It's comfortable. It's uh, it's an easy thing to read. It doesn't flop around on you. Somebody put a little thought into this design. Uh, so it not only looks nice, but it reads easily. Just saying. Now, you want to go get your Kindle and read it on whatever device, or you want to get the digital version. I don't know what other digital versions are available. Maybe Alan can tell us that. First of all, I know you can get this on Amazon. Is there any place else that they can get it or they should get it? I usually have several copies in my car. Okay, um, that works too. <laughs> so that works. Is is there a place if somebody wants a signed copy from you? I mean, I, I don't know. I'm just spitballing here. Uh, yeah, signed yeah, copies. I mean, contact me through Facebook probably, um, and I can accommodate people. I'd be happy to. There you go. Okay, so there's that. But otherwise, they can get it through Amazon if they like. Uh, is there any place else? No. Okay, so just Amazon. Correct. At okay. Least at the moment. I thought maybe the the digital book might have been available through Apple. Is that is that something that I not that I'm aware, but uh, uh, that is uh, something that I will investigate. I'm also interested in having some uh, making the book available in uh, other languages. Mm. I, I've been I'm I'm aware that there are people in Japan and in the former Soviet Union who are interested in this particular work. Okay, so there there are possibilities of other places uh, it, it being available in other spots, say, on the uh, yeah. interwebs soon enough. But for now, I'll give you guys the uh, link to uh, the Amazon page to purchase it. And uh, this is your, your first uh, published effort, right? That's correct. I've been allowed the privilege of participating in uh, the works of Dr. Newman, and that's a great honor uh, because his work is so extraordinary, and I feel like I'm I'm really doing something that will have relevance to future generations of students and scholars. And uh, but I've never done it. I've never been responsible for every aspect of you know the finished product. So what you say just a moment ago about this being user-friendly and that you appreciate the way it's formatted, the design of the book, all of this stuff is, it's all painting. Uh, it's composition. You start with a blank canvas, a blank page, and you turn it into what you envision or what you hope the product will resemble. And it kind of takes on a life of its own, Chuck. And I can tell you that there's a an extraordinarily striking and beautiful composite photograph, which is the cover photo that was created by my friend uh, Darlene Davis. And uh, she offered it to me as really just to give me an idea to suggest a, a concept. And it's a composite of a staged photo that I took of Malcolm at the National Archives some years ago, where he's got his index fingers extended and he's evaluating two separate lines of uh, two different documents. Uh, and she superimposed that image crudely over a photograph of the official White House portrait of President Kennedy in the White House. And she used scotch tape. And when I saw that first version of it, uh, and I shared it with Malcolm immediately, we were both struck by something that just seemed write uh, about, if you look closely, you know, at the details, you see this residue from the scotch tape, which makes it look like a, uh, 
you know, a forgery or something, which is not irrelevant to some of the things, some of the themes uh, which are referred to in the book, which relate to uh, tradecraft. So, uh, so it was a gift I hadn't anticipated. Uh, my dear brother in England, Bart Camp, gave me a breathtakingly beautiful portrait of Malcolm, which I will use on his website once we get that up, malcolmblunt.com. It's not up yet. Uh, Bart Camp gave me a beautiful black and white photo, perfect image of Malcolm. Uh, mm -hmm. But standing by itself offered no context about who this distinguished-looking, uh, you know, older gentleman is. And my friend Darlene created this image, and as soon as I showed it to Malcolm, he said, uh, I think that's it. And I said, I can hardly believe it, but yes, I, I agree. And uh, so things come together as a collaboration when you don't think that they – or you don't intend that it will be a collaboration, but – you know, as Dr. Newman would want me to be sensitive to things as they arise, pay attention to what's happening as it's happening and be flexible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And just for the, the listener, in case you're looking for the book and you see the image, uh, many people may not be familiar with the portrait of JFK as uh, being the official portrait. But this is the one where his arms are folded and his head is down. That's and right. that is sort of on the wall uh, behind you know, uh, a sort of position behind uh, Malcolm, which may not be recognizable. Malcolm may not be a recognizable figure, but definitely an older looking gentleman with glasses, his fingers extended, as you described. And all of this is framed uh, along with uh, red and white text, which is, you know, the devil is in the details. That is on the front there. But up top, over top of that, is that blurb uh, from Robert F. Kennedy Jr. that, Alan described earlier. So just so you know that you've happened along the right book, if you go searching, that is the correct book. And uh, I hold a physical copy in my hands. I appreciate physical books. Um, I have difficulties with some of these uh, Kindles and all this other stuff. And yeah, quite frankly, uh, th this one is very friendly, very easy to read. Thank um, you. So I'm extremely pleased that I'm just saying it's worth the physical copy. If you're saying to yourself, well, I could save a few bucks. And listen, if you want to do that, great, do it. But if you're somebody who appreciates physical books, I would suggest getting the physical copy. Agreed. Um, anyway, all of that aside, let's get into what's in the physical copy of the book a little bit. And, uh, you know, give me some uh, bullet slash selling points here because – uh, I know that there are remarkable conversations and in context, they have a meaning. Uh, I, again, I've only gotten partially through the book, but I'm sure there's much, much more for me to absorb. But um, maybe you could tease us with a few things that uh, somebody could discover in this book, not necessarily quote them or anything, but just give me an idea. Uh, about a few things that, uh, you, you know, you, you feel are important because maybe not entirely unique in your presentation, but would be rare. See, because that's the thing with JFK literature <laughs> or anything related to the JFK literature. In a lot of cases, for a lot of years, people put out books with almost the same template. Yeah, this isn't and like that. It's nothing like that. But no. you know what the selling point was for me to even trudge through yet again another one of these descriptions from Love Field to the nightmare on Elm Street. I mean, it's just <laughs> uh, like to make me have to trudge through that again. 
I would always say, what is in this book that I'm not getting somewhere else or that isn't easily found everywhere else? So if you could think about that and throw me a few points, maybe elaborate on them a little bit, give us an idea why somebody who is interested not only in all the subjects we talked about in the first hour, uh, but also the assassination itself, or perhaps, to be honest with you, this could be a study if you don't even care about the material. It's an interesting study in how there is a, uh, what shall I call it, a composite of individuals that do coalesce to examine this case. And it's a wide range of individuals. I talked about skill sets. You didn't really like that phrase. But if you think about it, um, it's not always their professions that they bring to it. It's not always their background as a police officer or a detective or but some of the skills they learned or some of the skills that uh, they had no choice but to not necessarily learn but sort of just uh, organically adopt <laughs> um, become relevant. Um, and, and when you see people interact, this is the great thing about conferences, by the way, and cooperations in, in the investigation and analysis, uh, is that you'll find individuals who have different, again, I know you don't like the phrase, skill sets, coming together and uh, really teaching each other. And that's another sense only partway through the book that I'm getting from this is that you could examine this as a way to really expose how cooperation works when you're, um, quite frankly, creating something as you go, not necessarily following a template or a formula, but, uh, Really, you know, uh, in real time, creating a formula that does result in the advancement of information, the yeah. understanding of information. And one could look at this even objectively and say, well, this is what it looks like when people interact and have these sorts of conversations. That in and of itself could be a study, yet another way to look at the book. But if you wouldn't mind, give me a couple of bullet points here that are either rare or unique pieces of insight or information. Yeah, I think it's all uh, rare because um, the, the people who are participating are such uh, distinctive individuals. Uh, everybody who is speaking, we've all known each other for a long time. Dr. Newman and Malcolm go back to 1995, the publication first edition of Oswald and the CIA, which ultimately was updated and expanded for 2008 edition. Uh, so they've been close for decades. They, they really uh, cemented their bond uh, by being at the National Archives uh, together and having a great deal of the kind of conversation which is only possible between figures uh, of that, for lack of a better word, of that stature. So I would say there's quite a lot, uh, as you suggest there's quite a lot that is unique and that is not standard about this and that is a mixed blessing some people really like to have materials to refer to which reinforce whatever their predisposition towards the case might already be for instance if your attitude is that Lyndon Johnson is responsible then you like reading about books that say that that's what happened if you like the idea that uh, Carlos Marcello or Santo Traficante were involved in, there are plenty of books about that. Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, the CIA is a notion unto itself, especially in relation to uh, new databases 
that are created because of the period of the 1970s, uh, really the beginning of the decade, the Pike Committee, Edwards Committee, uh, Senate Select Committee on Intelligence Activities, it's a church committee, the Rockefeller Commission, where uh, former chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, Lyman Limnitzer, having retired from his position as uh, Supreme Allied Commander in uh, NATO, uh, until 1969, he comes out of retirement to sit uh, or stand, for all I know, at, with the Rockefeller Commission. Mm-hmm. All precursors to the House Select Committee on Assassinations were basically nothing happens during the era of um, William Casey. Uh, Oliver Stone's film comes out and uh, George Herbert Walker Bush signs into law the 1992 President John F. Kennedy Records Collection Act which requires the creation of the Assassination Records Review Board. There's a database, brand new pages of information associated with every single one of those places that I just rattled off. Mm. Malcolm Blunt is deeply knowledgeable about all of that. Now, if you talk to him about it, you'll get uh, the impression that he doesn't think that he knows very much at all and that he, as he's quoted uh, within the book, as he said to me many times, he feels that he's at the beginning of the beginning because these are different areas that require uh, different types of study because on the one hand, we've got the uh, the concept, if, just hang with me for a second, the, the mm-hmm. car- cartography of creating realistic and accurate maps of the terrain of the Cold War and the various areas that we're focused upon. And that covers a a broad chronology. Uh, Malcolm would say it started long before uh, late October of 1959 with Oswald's defection, Richard Snyder's office inside the American embassy in Moscow. And and I'm sure it does. But, uh, you know, we've got a chronology that goes beyond uh, the period of the assassination. But at least with regard to the Oswald figure um, or figures, you've got an awful lot of strangeness that is uh, encompassed within the period of uh, the defection scene and uh, odd improbable and for many years inexplicable weirdness inside the agency in relation to the State Department about the defection sequence, which is November of 1959. Mm -hmm. And then you've got four years later, similarly strange uh, aberrations in protocol, something that seems not normal uh, in late September, early October of 63, pertaining to the Oswald figure in Mexico City and how the agency deals with that. We're talking about internal stuff. And so Malcolm is somebody who has helped to focus our attention on understanding the systems that are in place, for instance, to handle the paper trail that accompanies uh, an American Uh, who defects to the Soviet Union at the peak of the Cold War. And in the example of uh, Lee Oswald's predecessor, a guy named Robert Webster, um, we see a familiar trajectory that goes through the Office of Central Reference into the Office of Mail Logistics, where proper routine dissemination to the various desks 
within the Soviet Russia division. I know this is complicated, but you asked for some bullet points. Here's something that I think is worth sharing. Mm -hmm. You'll be able to, by examining the conversations, 10 conversations within this book, one of the things that we focus upon with some considerable attention, because it is an illuminating insight that Malcolm has brought to our attention, that the system is designed to do things that it's designed to do for a reason. And once you understand that reason, it makes sense. Let me insert a question here really quickly. And that is, is this part of Chapter 5 where Malcolm and Dr. Newman are discussing uh, this? Because <clears throat> I remember in 2003, uh, Dr. Newman gave a presentation that sounds vaguely like this would make perfect sense, and, and we're talking already 17 years ago. That's exactly uh, right. But you, what you don't know is how many conversations Malcolm had had with uh, with Dr. Newman since 2000 or since 1995. Mm -hmm. And so, a, a, in addition to which, uh, Malcolm had a very important conversation with uh, someone who became one of his closest friends in his life, and it was a reciprocal. Um, relationship, uh, really one of the important friendships of Malcolm's life was with an extraordinary man who was an extraordinary scholar in his own right named Tenant Pete Bagley. Mm. And uh, Pete Bagley was the chief of counterintelligence of the Soviet Russia division, uh, although not during the period of Oswald's defection. And uh, he was, among other things, the case officer, original case officer, 1962, of a man named uh, Yuri Nosenko, who's a figure, who fig he's a person who figures very prominently as a supposed Russian defector. Right. Um, and that's a very complicated thing, and we'll we'll go into some detail about that in in the book. But uh, see, this is part of what I'm talking about about the way things are relatable on on a level below the surface. So if you start studying the Oswald figure in a very serious way, mm -hmm. as Malcolm has, maybe to the greatest extent of anybody alive, uh, you have to deal with things like elements of the KGB and and the, their CIA counterparts. And one of the central places here is Berlin uh, during the period where a man named Peter Popov is a senior KGB uh, authority – and East Berlin at a time when the senior Western Berlin chief is a man named William King Harvey. Right. And Pyotr Popov uh, relayed, because he's a def what's called a defector in place, he relayed to his case officer, a man named Kiesewalter, CIA officer, Kiesewalter, that uh, uh, he reported that a senior KGB official had boasted that they had complete technical details on the U-2. Now, you, to really understand the significance of that statement in 1959, you'd have to have a sense of what Lee Oswald was doing in 1957, 58, 59 uh, in, at Sugi, at a CIA uh, military base from which the uh, U-2 spy plane would take off on its missions to photograph um, and surveil uh, the Soviet Union. See, now, one uh, of my practical questions here has yeah. always stood uh, it, it related to this mm -hmm. regarding uh, exactly what level of knowledge would Oswald have had at that time. I, I, I don't 
think and and this again is is not necessarily I'm not saying that I'm expert in any way uh like any of the people we're discussing here but a big question would be can we know what level of knowledge he would have had because to give detailed technical knowledge on everything related to the U2 might not have been something Oswald was capable of giving uh depending quite agree. Quite agree, but this this uh, the this admission by Pyotr Popov comes before the Oswald defection sequence. So uh. what we have to do, reverse engineering wise, and this is before Francis Gary Powers is shot down in a U two, all of which derails a a proposed um, um, mission of peace at which. Uh, Nikita Khrushchev and Dwight Eisenhower are supposed to meet and uh, and certainly coincides with a period where, unbeknownst to most people in the intelligence apparatus, uh, there's a spy plane called the SR-71, or at least eventually called the SR-71, mm-hmm. which is in the wings, literally awaiting deployment during this period, being, being developed to replace the U-2. But... One way that I would choose to address your question is from the perspective of the the interview scene in Richard Snyder's office, where Lee Oswald claims that he has special information that he intends to share with Soviet authorities, it does not have to matter what he actually knew. What matters is the attitude of the Soviet authorities about what, what, what this guy might know that could conceivably be advantageous for them to avail themselves. So this is the beginning of something that, honest to God, and I'm telling you from the bottom of my heart, we'll be here five hours if we really start to deal with the issues that are relevant to studying how Oswald got into the Soviet Union and what what did he do there and how many people associated not with a CIA station but with the American embassy may have had State Department. State Department cover, and we're actually deep integrated, you know, identities from, you know, deep integrated cover from the from the agency, right. using uh, the auspices of the State Department Foreign Service officers, and there's a whole other thing that we're interested in involving a guy named Norman Gentile who had worked with Harvey in Berlin, and then all of a sudden he becomes uh, security officer, office of security in the State Department, where. That's a good place to be in terms of having a career CIA guy suddenly reassigned to a spot in the Office of Security. Uh, a bullet that, that I should get to because otherwise I'll get – I always get derailed and I apologize. But, you know, it's an – we got a lot of balls in the air at the same time with all of the stuff associated with this period of the Oswald figure in the Soviet Union and all of that, and uh, Minsk KGB and the introduction uh, in 2017 of access to the IJ decanter documents, which refer to a trusted KGB source reporting to a CIA uh, liaison that uh, that Marina was uh, had an association that is understandable to us. Um, in the form of being labeled what's called a swallow. Um, and that the Oswald event was something that was rather orchestrated and that once she achieved her objective of finding a golden ticket out of the Soviet Union and getting to America, she refused the approaches of uh, 
KGB efforts in the United States to engage her, fluffed them off completely. At least that's what it says in the documentation, all, you, all of which is available through the Mary Farrell Foundation if you search IJ Decanter, the digraph being IJ, D-E-C-A-N-T-E-R. Um, the thing I, I wanted to specify is that one of the things that Malcolm introduced to me instantly in our original encounters in 2014 was the importance of not focusing exclusively on CI-6, which is Counterintelligence Special Investigations Group. Mm -hmm. And that's James Angleton's shop inside um, the agency. Malcolm wanted us first to study the, the, the meaning of the Office of Policy Coordination, which for two years, 1948, September 1st, I think, of 1948, through mid-1950, uh, is kind of an independent thing, and it comes from the State Department uh, in the form of a guy named Frank Wisner, who I always thought was a CIA guy. But um, And then, you know, the question is, well, maybe he was, but, you know, once you start dealing with uh, elements within the agency, components within the agency, the Office of Central... Uh, no, Office of um, Commercial Cover, Commercial Cover Staff, Military Cover Staff, um, Central Cover Staff. It gets very complicated very quickly in terms of trusting what's in the documentary record. So we do the best we can, and with educated eyes over a period of time, we can we can make educated assessments of whether something is legit or if something is what Malcolm refers to as eyewash. And eyewash is something that is intentionally misleading, that is incorporated into a documentary record. And it turns out in the 1970s, uh, in dealing with a man named Antonio Vesiana, we have uh, all kinds of things that seem uh, that that would take me quite a while to place into appropriate context involving some other CIA officers who are not uh, David Atlee Phillips mm-hmm. in relation to Antonio Vesiana's claims and the possibility that something is – that the record is being seeded in a way that uh, that is not an uncommon practice – and that an awful lot of misdirection is at work in terms of some of the stuff that is emerging uh, within the new database that's being created during the period of the Church Committee and especially the House Select Committee on Assassinations. But right. the focus away from CIC and onto something called the Office of Security, Security Research Staff, that's one of the big bullets in this thing. The official position of the agency during the Cold War, and that's all we're talking about. We don't know about, we have no interest in, we have no knowledge whatsoever of the current um, atmosphere within the various new branches of the American intelligence apparatus as it exists in the 21st century. We're talking Mm -hmm. about 50 years ago and more. Um, we're, We're talking about something that the official CIA historical position is very simply that the Office of Security was responsible for background checks and polygraphs. And we think that there's a little more to it than that. So, well, there's uh, always more to these things, Alan. I mean, uh, yeah, quite honestly, it's, <laughs> it's, you know, if you take just what you've been discussing here, I think it's relevant. And I don't know how you feel about it or if you've ever read Ernst Titovitz's book. I uh, sure have. I had dinner with him. I talked to him in detail about Marina. And you want to know what he said? 
Uh, well, I, I've had some discussions with him too, but go ahead, tell me. <laughs> tell I me what he said to you. Very simply, at dinner, I had the privilege of getting to spend a little bit of time with him behind the scenes, and I asked him, uh, you know, if, if there was, if he, what was his recollection of the introduction of Marina? Because he had had uh, an acquaintanceship, a friendship uh, with not only with Lee, but also with a small circle of, of, friends that included Lee and other people. And at, at one point, one day, Marina gets introduced to the to the group. Right. And then she stays. And I asked uh, Dr. Titovitz, what was his recollection of the attitude among the small circle of friends of Lee Oswald about her appearance? His exact words to me were, oh, we thought she was a plant. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, precisely the phrase he used to me as well. Um, <laughs> so there's something to that. Also, you know, the examination of uh, you brought up uh, Robert Webster uh, and and the idea that maybe Marina had an acquaintance with Mr. Webster. Well, I'm sure that's just a coincidence. Don't you know, think that, yeah. uh-huh. there's just I'm just saying there's a lot to this. And uh, I'm not saying that, uh, you know, it was Oswald's Russian episode, I think he titled his book. That's correct. Uh, but it's very, and I, I, I know this pretty well because I was the first one to review it in this country. Um, but it, it was, uh, it was remarkable to, uh, to read this account. Now I'm not saying that, you know, it's the absolute gospel account of anything, but it's very interesting to see it from, uh, Ernst side of things. During well, I that think time, it's valuable, and I and very highly valuable. recommend. I highly recommend that people who are interested will avail themselves. Oh yeah. Uh, are you? You may never have heard about this I.J. Decanter stuff, um, but this is also relevant to understanding the uh, not just Oswald in the Soviet Union, but especially the um, interest, for lack of a better word, the very serious scrutiny that the. Uh, Soviet intelligence authorities um, focused upon Lee Oswald. Mm -hmm. So uh, released in 1998 with deletions, uh, I don't think we really had any of this until 2017 because Mm -hmm. the uh, the word, the the crypt, I.J. Decanter, had not been released until last year. And so... Uh, I can read to you from one of the documents uh, d- dated 27th of February 1990. Now, remember, this is right around the period where an awful lot of people are looking to think towards the future after the dissolution of the Soviet Union, which is imminent. And uh, the first page of uh, one of the I.J. Decanter documents uh, begins – The tape begins with conversation already in progress. Repetitions and extraneous remarks have been deleted. Uh, Parentheses indicate words missing or partially garbled, etc. The letter G is used to note words words that are garbled, and it goes on. And it begins, the the transcript begins, uh, pretend that they are students. I dare say that the same thing that we mentioned here with scientists, we just perform with students. You also mentioned students studying in Moscow. You target them as well. Now, this is a Soviet um, 
resource that the agency considers reliable. And he says, well, we have some very many changes within department with the second chief. He's talking about the second chief directorate versus the first chief directorate, which is the division distinction between two separate bureaucracies happened in the late 50s where KGB basically subdivides. Uh, And you got good guys and bad guys in each one, and it's full of rivalries and people who are opportunistic and, you know, treat each other as adversaries and all the usual stuff. Uh, And he goes on and he talks about the way these things are handled uh, in terms of what was the protocol about dealing with a figure like Oswald. And so the the question is um, asked uh, – so if somebody's a case officer, is he possessive of his agent? Uh, he doesn't want to get his agent involved. And the the response is American occupied, of course, higher position. Uh, and then the British student who wanted to be a journalist, and he personally told our officer, I want this guy, I want this British guy to work for me in Moscow. So they're targeting particular people that are over there, some of whom are over there on assignment. Uh, The SR-10, I believe, Soviet Russia Desk 10, which is a specific place with a specific area of of, – Focus, um, basically. Focus as data collection and data analysis through something called the legal travelers – uh, meaning dealing with people who have some kind of authentic documentation to allow them to be in the Soviet Union at the peak of the Cold War. And he says, so on Oswald, you mentioned earlier attending a reception in KGB higher school in Minsk. He discussed his involvement with Lee Harvey Oswald. I told you probably uh, before they were stationed in Minsk, Oswald was considered to be one of our agents. And the question is, while you were in – wait a minute. What was What was that with Minsk? He says, yes, before you were in Minsk, he, he was considered while you were in Minsk. I had a guy, a colonel, family named Yershak, um, uh, and although this colonel told me that he ran a file on Oswald. Marina Oswald's wife was our swallow. She was our agent. Marina, question, Marina was a swallow run by, do you know which directorate? And uh, the answer is local KGB branch in Minsk, KGB Belarus, uh, and then there's some technical stuff. Second chief directorate uh, uh, would correspond to the second directorate. That's right. So Marina was directed. Oswald was living at this time in Minsk. He was living at the time in Minsk. I know his living area pretty well. He was put in very good conditions. It was a housing area on Svizolok River. It's very beautiful apartments, nice apartments. Mm -hmm. Was she a prostitute before she was recruited? She was not a prostitute, not a real prostitute in the sense you mean. She was the kind of girl whom we can just tell, come on and do this, but she was not a prostitute in classic sense. And she was directed to get Oswald in bed, answer, to get Oswald in bed. Oswald at that point had already been debriefed but not recruited. That's right, he was recruited at that point, but by Marina or before? No, before, because maybe you, for you to understand, every guy who is living in a different region of the Soviet Union, and he is a Brit or American, the locals pretend to recruit him, and they pretend that they run a very important agent. He's almost like a celebrity, I'm paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. So I don't know what kind of information could he release to them, except for Marina. I don't know actually. But even a lady teacher from Britain who lives in Irkutsk, even they pretend that she is their agent. So part of this, for you to get a sense of why I'm sharing this with you, is because as opposed to what people think they know, about the term agent, for instance, about how it is actually applied. 
by professionals, you have to go very slowly through this stuff and don't overreact. Take your time with it because new information emerges that helps us understand things better. And that's what the IJ Decanter stuff does. Right. And just the use of the word agent, like you said, is not necessarily what people think in the Hollywood sense. Exactly right. Uh, In fact, it doesn't necessarily even mean something among the people who are using it in terms of the way that it will be interpreted by people who are not professionals in the intelligence um, profession. Well, right. Like an agent, for instance, scientifically, an agent is something that's introduced into a situation. It doesn't necessarily mean that it's positive, negative, or it's even part of it. It was introduced into the situation. Introduced for reasons which may be entirely deceptive. Uh, right. And, you know, and here's the other thing is that we learned over the years that all sorts of people, even the first woman that Oswald asked him to, to, to marry him. That's right. Uh, we're, we're constantly being debriefed by the local. Remember the use of the word local KGB, right? That's right. So uh, about the, 20 people that have been named, identified, um, uh, including a guy named uh, Golovichev who developed a sudden interest as a personal hobby in photography right at the moment that he is introduced to Lee Oswald. So he's Pavel Golovichev, mm-hmm. and his, his father was a, a decorated general during World War II, fight, risked his life fighting against Nazi Germany. Um, but all of that is is an interesting area. I, I guess in relation to our book, the, the book that we're, we're talking about, um, this is um, – insight that comes because, only because, of the familiarity uh, that someone like Malcolm Blunt has with stuff that has been released, but unless people avail themselves of it, and here's, here's the subtlety. It's not enough to simply read stuff that gets released. You have to have done your homework. You have to have a background where you are deeply informed about what's already been released. Something, for instance, that was released in 1998, for instance, that we, we've had for this many years but didn't necessarily know what to make of it. And then only with educated eyes and, and a firm recollection of what it is that relates to it from the past do we – bridge the gap between 1998 and the present so that all of a sudden there's an underlying continuity that is illuminated. Mm-hmm. That's the kind of thing that Malcolm Blunt brings to people like Dr. John Newman and Jeff Morley and Bill Simpich and Professor Joan Mellon and lots and right. lots and lots of other important figures who are engaged in this effort. Well, exactly. And another point, just really quickly, is that, you know, as cryptonyms become available, you have to go back over stuff that was not previously understood. Or was previously misunderstood. Absolutely Uh, right. All kinds of misinterpretations associated with the geographic specificity of digraphs where, you know, all kinds of things have emerged that have allowed us to refine our understanding of being able to recognize uh, – and then there's this whole other thing. There's this other whole complexity, which I'm reluctant to even begin to address, an internal uh, IDN system, uh, a record system that gets dismantled in 1964 inside the agency. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's interesting timing. And uh, and then you've got uh, another complexity associated with the effects uh, of um, 
of somebody who basically went public with an awful lot of compromising information on the agency, uh, which threw everything uh, into upheaval. Uh, I can't think of the guy's name right now. I'm ashamed that I can't think of his name right this second. But uh, he made a lot of news uh, for a time in the 70s, the result of which is some things got re, uh, re-labeled. And so um, – uh, I'm working actually right now on something that uh, that uh, that Malcolm and I are trying to put together that helps us understand a, a double digraph, the only case of which I'm aware, where there are uh, four letters. Uh, it's uh, something called PLVW Cadet, and um, huh. I, I could give you a taste of this if you're interested in it. Can I give you a little taste? Well, you know, we, we've only got a few minutes left, uh, and I would like really? to – Yeah, believe it or not, we've got like seven minutes left. Oh, my God. Uh, and I'd, I'd really like to uh, bring it back okay. around because these details are – again, the devil is in the details. <laughs> <laughs> well, that does bring it back around, doesn't it? You know, and, and that is the title of your book. Uh, but again, it, a lot of this is the ability to observe conversations that are occurring here, uh, mostly centered around Malcolm Blunt, who is listed as the co-author. Uh, but uh, again, this uh, came to fruition through your work, your conversations over about five years, you said. Uh, and, uh, Je- you know, Jefferson Morley makes an appearance in here. Dr. Newman makes an appearance in here. Is there anybody else of note? As a matter of fact, thank you for asking our dear, revered, and properly loved and admired uh, Professor Peter Dale Scott allowed me uh, to include an excerpt from a private telephone conversation that he and I shared. So there are 10 transcribed conversations, the work of a beautiful friend of mine in Australia, Mary Constantine, who is absolutely superb and who understands the content of what's being talked about sufficiently well to improve upon things in places to help clarify uh, ten, ten separate transcribed conversations, in addition to which there are eight appendices. Uh, Appendix 8 is an excerpt of private telephone conversation between Professor Scott and myself, and I think it's very relevant to our studies. A great deal of the book is focused on issues pertaining to the Oswald identity. And the Oswald figures, mm. plural, represented in the documentary record, and Professor Scott without admonishing me, wanted me to be open to looking at the Oswald figure in the documentary record as being possibly uh, interpretable in more ways than one. And that's an important lesson that I, I think the book helps to illustrate. These are very, very smart guys. And one of the things that everybody shares in common here is take your time with this stuff Don't put your foot in your mouth and don't make absolute declarations that you know what nobody else knows about this stuff. A lot of what's wrong is we take for granted things that everybody knows that are true, which aren't true. And that is the Mark Twain thing. It's not what people don't know that gets them into trouble. It's what they know for sure that just ain't so. So I included the excerpt with Dr. Professor Scott's you know, blessing, God bless him, and uh, and I'm grateful for that. There's also a lot of miscellaneous other stuff, all kinds of little nooks and crannies and some things that I, I think uh, are valuable because you get a, a, a sense of what 
what not only are you a fly on the wall in these conversations, especially the one with uh, Professor or uh, Dr. Newman and uh, and Malcolm, where it literally, Chuck, is like spy dialogue. It's like, mm-hmm. okay, this is the real thing. What do guys like this talk about with each other when they get together and are talking shop? Right. No, and I, I feel as though I am going to have to revisit this with you in another program uh, yeah. because – as it's emerging, uh, and, and I've only gotten partway through the book and I'm already well engaged, but, but I also know that, uh, this is going to require some analysis. And, uh, as I've said on this show a lot of times, I like to read a book three times at least yeah. <laughs> before I, I really feel as though I've digested it. Um, I, I may have to break that rule and go four. <laughs> Just saying, because, uh, there, there, there is a lot in here. Uh, and yes, you know, j- just given who it is you're, you're having conversations with, that's one thing, but also the, uh, the level of knowledge and intricacy here is, uh, is going to be something that is worthy of study. So one more time, I tell you, if you go to amazon.com and you search for the devil is in the details. Okay. Uh, it is authored by Alan Dale and Malcolm Blunt. So you, you'll see both of them on the spine there. But uh, Alan Dale has been my guest, and uh, I want to give you the last couple of minutes here if you want to give a parting thought or something, uh, and then we'll be done with this very special uh, Ocelli Effect, which will air repeatedly and uh, be distributed uh, probably on Wednesday, along with the regular Tuesday uh, uh, broadcast. So you guys are getting two shows out of Tuesday. Maybe I'll take Wednesday off. Uh, and, Much deserved. So, uh, but but definitely something. If you are into the JFK assassination uh, history, uh, dealing with the people that actually study it and getting a, a unique insight into some of those conversations, like Alan said, uh, in some cases I bet we're looking at information that is there for exposition. In other cases, we may be catching conversation that you would not normally be privy to unless you were out to dinner with people and just uh, socializing, uh, you know, in, in very, very rare circumstances. So I think this is interesting, insightful, and different for sure. So, Alan, any uh, parting thoughts here? Well, the first parting thought is how sincerely grateful to you I am, not just for being such a good friend, but for fighting the fight that you that you fight. Uh, you asked me about skill set. I would say to you that I had a private conversation with Bobby Jr. where I said to him that I was trying to come to terms with my role in all of this and that maybe my role was to help communicate to people who are not already walking encyclopedias what exactly is going on in the work of people of the stature of Dr. John Newman and Malcolm Blunt. And Bobby Jr. said, Alan, I think that's a good role for you. I would say the same to you. Everything you just said was absolutely right on. Uh, This is the the contents of this book represents something that is available, has been available really only to a select few number of people who first would be interested in this kind of depth and this kind of range and this kind of esoteric uh, complexity across a wide range of different areas that relate to the Oswald figure and the assassination, but also relate to understanding who President Kennedy truly was, which is the most essential thing in all of this. Who was that guy and what 
what distinguished him in relation to the common themes of Cold War anti-communist fanaticism and a concern that uh, there was an inevitable uh, nuclear exchange on the horizon with the Soviet Union, um, only available to people, for instance, who attend a conference back in the days when such things could be attended mm. uh, non-virtually. And then what, what happens, which you got a flavor of when you and I were together a couple of years ago in Dallas, after hours – you get together with a guy in the bar or a couple of people, that's where some real stuff that you'll remember, you, you won't retain, you just be honest. Even if you make notes, you won't retain most of the presentations that you'll sit through. But what you'll remember are the personal conversations, the private behind the scenes, casual conversations about what, what are the concerns, what are the areas where we don't have enough to make a presentation, but that we're interested in, or what did we just learn that relates to something that was relevant to us some years ago, which we simply didn't know enough about to do anything with. That's what you get when you attend a conference and you hang out after the fact with, with the people who write the books and make the presentations. This book is made up of that kind of thing. So I'm grateful to you. I truly do consider you to be a good friend. I admire what you do and how you do it. And if I can ever be of service to you, if I can ever assist you, let me know. Well, that, that may come up sooner than you might imagine. But in oh, the meantime, I, I am uh, also looking forward to the day when I can again hold a beer in my hand and have a conversation with Alan Dale after hours. <laughs> <laughs> just adjacent to a bar. I said something like this on Facebook, but really, truly, um, <clears throat> I'm very selective about those I choose to drink with. And uh, I would sit down and drink with Alan Dale and, uh, well, maybe a handful of others, and I don't need my whole hand to count them. But meanwhile, The Devil is in the Details is the book. I urge you to uh, check it out. Go look at it. It's available on Amazon.com. I'll give you the links in the show notes and maybe a few other links of reference. But meanwhile, until later on today when I broadcast again, I am merely Ocelli. All of you are indeed the effect. Good night. <laughs>